Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. This episode of the podcast features a conference address by Nigel Cameron, a strategist and writer who has been a longtime friend of CBHD. In this address, Dr. Cameron directs our attention to the future, offering a number of important considerations for upholding human dignity as a wide range of technologies continue to develop. He delivered this address as part of CBHD's 2015 summer conference, Science, Research, and the Limits of Bioethics. Each summer, we host a conference to consider various aspects of bioethics, and this year will be no different. Our 2021 conference is entitled Bioethics and the Body, and it will feature an array of leading scholars addressing core concepts and bioethical considerations related to the myriad ways in which we view, interact with, manipulate, and analyze our physical bodies. Plenary sessions will focus on understanding the human body through a theological lens, disability and issues of identity in a bioethical context, the goals of medicine with respect to disease, as well as the biological and technological merging of the human and non-human. In addition, workshops and paper sessions will explore issues from among the wide spectrum of traditional and emerging bioethical topics. Importantly, early bird discount pricing of $50 savings is still in effect through March 31. The dates for the conference are June 24 through 26, 2021, and it will be presented online. Now, there is a possibility that we'll be able to host some attendees here on campus in person, depending on developments here in Lake County, Illinois. A final decision will be made at a later date. But the entirety of the conference will be available live online, even if a few are able to gather here on campus. For more information about our Bioethics in the Body conference and to register for the conference, remember, early bird rates save you $50 and are available only until March 31st. Visit cbhd.org and click on Conference at the top of the page. And now, here is When Hippocrates Met Kurzweil, Questions for Human Dignity in the 21st Century by Nigel Cameron, Ph.D., MBA from CBHD's 2015 conference, Science, Research, and the Limits of Bioethics. Well, Paige, thank you for that very kind and greatly overly generous introduction. Uh, It's a delight to be here um, and to be able to share with you. It's a delight to see that more than about a dozen of you have stayed around for the end of the conference. It's a great great, uh, privilege to be able to have this time together. And I very much enjoy being able to spend time in a lot of conversations over the last couple of days. Um, what, I, what I'd like to do, well, I mean, I can give you a little outline. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I, I've, I've used PowerPoint from time to time, but I was just saying, I, I'm now in the post-PowerPoint generation. We don't need these, these props anymore. Um, but I, I, will, I will give you a little bit of outline of what I'm going to do. Basically, I have for you five reflections. Um, I think five reflections. No, I have four reflections, three observations, and five desiderata. <laughs> so you've got it now. You can get on with your email. <laughs> I, I received uh, this last week one of the most interesting invitations I've had in a long time from a foundation in Europe, a, a, a biomedical research foundation, which is a, a major spender on, on research around the world uh, in a particular area, area of biomedicine to take part in a, a conference um, in the fall and to be on a panel 
which was looking ahead at science in a hundred years' time. The whole conference is on a hundred years' time. They're looking at values, looking at science, looking at governance, and so on and so forth. And in the letter of invitation, email of invitation which came, um, one of the lines used which caught my attention was that a child born today has every likelihood of being alive in 100 years' time. Now, this, this struck me particularly because in the last 12 months, three new grandchildren born, actually all little boys. I have quite a number of grandchildren, all little boys. And I was reflecting, they are liable to be alive in the year 2115. And the choices we make now, the choices we make in the next few years, are going to have a crucial role in shaping the world in which they live. And whereas speculating as to what will be happening in science and technology and in other areas in a hundred years' time uh, is no easy thing, I'm interested that there are people putting resources into framing that conversation. Because, of course, it's only when we look ahead that we can make proper decisions about what we should be choosing to do now. That these are two, there's a close correlation between the distant scene and our choices now. And that's, that's a theme which uh, I think runs through certainly my thinking for, for this afternoon's presentation. And of course it's run through, it's run through our conference. So with that, with that as my point of departure, that today's choices will set the pace, set the frame of reference, set the parameters for what takes place in the rest of this century and into the next. But do we have choices? There are those who take a fatalistic view. I was very interested and very pleased to see that, uh, that uh, Ros Picard yesterday was picking this question up and saying that she makes choices all the time. Do we do this or do we do that? The uh, volume on nanotechnology, which was referred to, I happen to have it here because I'm, I'm quoting something which, which we put in it. Um, some of you will know, here we are in Chicago, or almost in Chicago, the Chicago World's Fair, 1933-34 which was a huge demonstration of um, American vision, science, technology, future, and so on. Some of you will know the, uh, the Century of Progress Exposition, which was its formal name, the motto of the Chicago World's Fair. And it's one of these things that if you haven't heard it before, you wonder whether it was in the onion. Science finds, industry applies, Man conforms. Science finds, industry applies, man conforms. This is what they wanted to say about themselves. Seems to me, we have a choice. We have an unending series of choices. And that the prospect of science finding, industry applying, and our being required to conform is just about the most depressing prospect one could have in looking ahead and seeking to shape the environment for our children, our grandchildren, in a hundred years' time. The ethical enterprise <laughs> is all about the possibility of choice. Some of you will know Kevin Kelly's rather strange book, What Technology Wants. If you don't know it, I mean, get it and read it. It's a very, very interesting book. Kevin Kelly, in fact, is an evangelical Christian 
That isn't something he talks about very much, but it's out there, and it's, it's true. And he, member of a member of a local congregation, and one of the great visionaries behind the technological revolution. I think there are aspects to his thinking which some of us find naive, and that book, What Technology Wants, essentially takes the view that technology is taking over from evolution, essentially sweeping up inevitably toward a future shaped um, by Moore's law and the rest. And what technology wants is the question, and, and we have remarkably little say in determining what we want. And it's a sort of Tayyadian vision, for those of you who know Tayyad Ashada, of technology taking over the evolutionary, the evolutionary mantle. Or do we, in fact, have real choices? Um, I mentioned Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil, the thinker now actually working for Google, of all things, but essentially an independent thinker and inventor and highly influential technologist of the last generation and a half. Kurzweil, who popularized this term, the singularity, and the idea that the development of artificial intelligence would reach a certain point, and a point, you know, within the lifetimes of some of us, at which it would essentially take off, go through the roof, take over from us as the source of intelligence on our planet, and shape the future. The singularity, which in fact is a term picked up from a, some of you will know this, from a sci-fi story by a writer called Werner Vinge, and I believe he does pronounce it Vinge. I've met the man. And interesting, Vinge has sort of goes to all the Kurzweil conferences and, and has made speeches at these conferences, and I was at one some years ago, and I was very interested to hear him say, this is the man who came up with the basic idea of the singularity as the label for this process. Werner said, the longer we have our hand on the tiller, the better. Now, we presently have our hand on the tiller. What are we going to do? What is the direction in which, in which we, wish, we wish to proceed? That is the question. So, with the thoughts to you and Lincoln and Gideon, my three new grandsons, and their distant future, Four reflections. First, a reflection on the pace of change. And we all know about this. Exponential change. The point is, and I'm assuming we in this room are among the more savvy participants in these discussions, and so this is not news to us. We are at the very, very, very early stages of the digital revolution. There's a general view out there that we had a digital revolution, and isn't it all wonderful? And our smartphones get a little bit smarter every year, and a little bit cheaper, a little bit fancier, and so on, and so on, and that it, it, it happened. We're in the very early stages of this process. And the way in which, I mean, I conceptualize this is, if you like, there's a kink in the curve, you know, we can all draw the exponential curve. What naturally happens is that in the present day, we, and I think this is true of corporations, it's true of governments, it's true of individuals, we kink the curve. That is to say, we look back and we see exponential change. We see this curve rising like this, like this, like this, till now. And we look ahead and we kink it. And we shift from this geometric progression into an arithmetical progression, into a gradualist shift into the future, which we can understand, for which we can plan which seems to us to be reasonable. We look back at the steeps and we, we cherish this view that the future is now under control. 
I think you see this in many, I mean, you see this, for example, in Facebook. Facebook actually takes the view, Zuckerberg takes the view, that, you know, that, that the whole world will be on Facebook. Well, Facebook will be like Yahoo in X years' time. You know, it will still be profitable, but it'll be kind of embarrassing and odd. And it'll be something quite different, which we're all on. You know, Facebook hasn't sort of, you know, succeeded in kinking the curve of technological progress. But it's a natural tendency to think like that. Fallacy of the new normal. as a new normal which happens to be where we have ended up now. And the future is under control. That is not the case. And, of course, it is ironic and it is very challenging. The more difficult it is to look ahead, the more important it is to look ahead. If, in fact, the future were gradualist, essentially pretty much like today, but a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit more... I mean, it wouldn't much matter whether we looked ahead. As, uh, in fact, Ke- Kevin Kelly says in his book, one of the um, memorable phrases he uses, he's speaking about the year 1800, around 1800. And he says, in 1800, the cost of the water wheel was not halving every year. I'll see who's awake on a Saturday afternoon. This is the point. Moore's law actually was operating, according to Kelly, but in a very, very, very gradualistic way. point is, you did not have this dramatic shift in costs and computing power and energy, which, which we have now. But it didn't matter much back in 1800 whether you were looking 10 or 20 years ahead, because pretty much the social, cultural, technological norm would, would stay the same. Exponential change. We ain't seen nothing yet. And, you know, we, so we pro, we, my standard answer, which I'm sure I've given to some of you, I speak to pastors or, or seminary professors who say, you know, uh, okay, what, what, what do we do? I say, well, you know, set up a class, an elective, a Sunday school, reading science fiction. Don't set up an ethics class. That's, that's fine. But I mean, that's not the point. Get people reading science fiction. And what will they talk about? They'll talk about ethics. They'll talk about ethics. Absolutely, inevitably. Because the faster change takes place, the bigger the role for technology, the more complex the shifts within our social, cultural milieu, the bigger the ethical issues come back and hit us in the face. And interestingly, um, one of my favorite books, Neil Stevenson, you may know, actually, he's a huge sci-fi book. He's perhaps the smartest sci-fi writer out there, as well as the most prolix. Um, his book, The Diamond Age, which was in fact written in 1995, this is now 20 years old, which is his nanotechnology book, which is full of fascinating prescience. But he, he says this, I'll, I'll quote this. He says, now nanotechnology had made nearly everything possible. And so the cultural role in deciding what should be done with it had become far more important than imagining what could be done with it. That is to say, his vision is of a society which essentially runs on ethics. It's all about what should be done. Because essentially anything could be done. And that seems to me to be an index of the nature of the future into which we're moving. The centrality of questions of value. So that's, that's my first, my first uh, reflection. Second reflection. A reflection on the poverty of our public conversation. Deep weakness of our leadership, our political leadership, our cultural leadership, cultural commentators, public intellectuals, 
and of course, political candidates. And for all their relative merits and demerits, and some have big demerits and some have big merits. And that's true on both sides. I think politicians, by and large, are a fine bunch of people. I'm quite pro-politician. But these people are poor when it comes to reflecting upon the future, and therefore <laughs> the nature of the decisions which they need to make today. Um, I'm actually in the middle of writing an op-ed, which may appear in a week or two somewhere, um, in which I was, I was asked to do this, to, to frame what five debates ought they to be having in the presidential campaign. So I'll tell you which five came to my mind, and I've, I can get these through, through the editor. They'll, they'll appear. Well, first of all, this question which uh, Paige mentioned, a debate about the fact we are on the verge of outsourcing enormous numbers of jobs to machine intelligence, to robots, various kinds. An enormous, absolutely enormous question. You may know, for example, that um, when um, Instagram was taken over by Facebook for a billion, billion dollars, it had 13 employees. When Kodak, which from one point of view was its predecessor, was at the height of its powers, quite apart from all the distributors and labs and so on, Kodak Corporate employed 145,000 men and women. Now, you just project this. So, that question. Debate on risk, which really is the context for the climate discussion. I think it would be an awful lot easier if we framed this as a risk question rather than a sort of cult question. Which cult are you a member of? Are you on one side or on the other side? It's a risk question. We don't know. We have some good ideas. We can take different views. You draw a risk matrix and you put little X's there and you try to mitigate the risk. We may run out of antibiotics. World Health Organization is saying we will. We run out of antibiotics. The implications are yet more serious than even the most disastrous climate scenarios. Risk questions attaching to the future. Grey goo from nanotechnology. AI has run wild. You know, Elon Musk, who is probably the most significant innovator of our generation. Edison's true successor. He has said AI is a demon. Third debate. How do we bring the, the creativity of an innovative community like you have in Silicon Valley into the nature of American government, the culture of American government? What the current administration has done, to its credit, is hire a whole bunch of people from technology companies and stick them in pretty lowly positions in the federal government and give them not very much money. And they've done some useful and innovative things. But the culture, how do we have in our government the kind of innovative, far, for, forward-looking culture which we have among our, in our creative technology industries? We need a debate on how we handle asymmetric threats. Because one of the impacts of these technologies, including communication technologies, is to enable little people with small groups and small amounts of resources to threaten great nations, great civilizations, great powers. And whether this is Al-Qaeda, or whether it's Ed Snowden and Julian Assange, and whatever you take of, of these two rather strange men, um, point is, little individuals and small groups can now do something that, you know, you can have another carrier group and it'll make no difference. How do we cope with asymmetries? Which technology is making possible? And then finally, a debate on how the United States can use its amazing new technologies, both to help the world and to look really good. So we could have, you know, a MOOC, you know, a web-based educational program to offer full college degrees around the world free of charge to anybody. Perfectly plausible. Why isn't USAID doing that?
We could be using nanotechnology applications to offer the entire world clean drinking water, guaranteed by the United States, every family on the planet. These are all technologically perfectly feasible now in the next few years. What is our agenda for using these resources to the global good? We could obviously using social, social um, technologies to introduce accountability into government and into, into, into major corporations as well. These, these, these are all... Now, where is the agenda for us to bless the world with these technologies? Now, this is simply five questions I think we should be having at the heart of our national conversation about the application and meaning and significance of technology and about its values. For example, and you can add your own, the poverty of our public conversation. And I have to say the poverty of our <coughs> ecclesiastical conversation too. Although, God bless the Pope for weighing in and doing something about the climate debate. I mean, whether you agree with him or not. I mean, here we do have a major Christian leader addressing a contemporary question. Looking ahead. And um, the church has lead it can take in these areas which hardly begun to consider. So, thirdly, third reflection. The pervasive significance of emerging technologies. You see, we've had a lot of debates in the bioethics arena about isolable procedures, practices, values, whether it's assisted suicide, whether it's embryos, stem cells, and so on. These are isolable. They're quite distinct from each other, and they can be a focus of policy and so on. These emerging technology questions are pervasive of our culture, and so cannot be handled like that. Obviously, machine intelligence is the most significant of all of them. Um, which, you know, obviously, Ross Picard was talking about this. Uh, Jennifer Wiseman referred to the brain-machine interface, which basically is, is how human intelligence engages with machine intelligence. Our growing mastery of human genetics, whether we're speaking about CRISPR and techniques already in our hands, whether we're looking ahead to the synthetic biology possibilities, is basically biology is turned into a department of engineering, the vast social as well as personal impact of these technological applications. What is the agenda for human dignity, for privacy, for freedom, for the individual, which lies at the heart of our vision, the Imago Dei, in a world in which these pervasive technologies have significance which grows, which grows by the day? Fourth, reflection on the integrative character of the solutions we need. And I'll talk some more about this toward the end. Now, you see, what you have in the Hippocratic Oath is you have the embedding of an ethical vision in medical practice. This is much more important than seeing it as a list of rules. The covenantal character of the whole, the nature of the medical guild, the fact you can only teach medicine to students who have already signed on to the values and so on and so forth, all there in the earth. You are embedding the ethics in the technology. The, the two, the two are, are inseparable. And this is precisely the approach which we need in the 21st century and beyond. Although we can't just do it with a particular profession. We can't just, you know, say that if you want to go and um, learn to be an engineer, you've got to have a certain set of values. Because the pervasive technologies, and every industry on the planet will be applying them. 
My, the screen here is flashing away. I'm just glad it's not flashing away for you. I think technology is not happy with some of the things I've been saying. Um, <laughs> and so if, if what the Hippocratic position said was we must practice medicine with respect to the dignity of the patient, what we must say in a much broader canvas in the 21st century is we must practice technology with respect to the dignity of the individual. And we must embed the moral vision in the technology and in our assumptions about the way in which it is, it is being applied. Or as someone once said, don't be evil. And it's very interesting, you know, that was actually in Google's IPO document, formally as the motto on which they were operating. And the idea, whatever you make of Google, is a perfect one, that you build a corporation on a moral principle. Now, three observations. First, the role of government is shifting and is going to become less and less and less relevant to the kind of ethical concerns we have in the application of these technologies. The option of public policy engagement, a la euthanasia, stem cells, abortion, and so on, is going to diminish, indeed is increasingly irrelevant, in the development of these transformative technologies. You can't just put your, put your thumb on the thing you want and ask Congress or an agency to give it to you. Secondly, it will increasingly, by contrast, be investors who decide what is done with the technologies. And behind them, of course, inventors, innovators, who decide where to put their energies, which, of course, will be closely correlated with the capital used to develop the products. Um, whether this is the major corporations, and some of you, for example, Microsoft spends $10 billion a year on research and development. One of the largest spends in the world, private company. One of the auto companies, I think, is top. It may be, um, is it, is it, is it Volkswagen, I think, spend something like $15 billion a year on R&D? Um, but there is a huge private R&D expenditures. I mean, $15 billion will be half the budget of the National Institutes of Health. These are enormous amounts of money. Um, but venture capital. And, of course, increasingly, there's a global capital flows, you know, this money will just wash around and go after the innovator and where there are markets. And the decisions made by banks, by by merchant banks, by individual investors, by these major corporations, will shape what is done with these technologies and which technologies are developed. And third observation um, is to draw us back to something some of you will know about academically, which is called the Collingridge Di Dilemma, named after a British academic called Collingridge, who wrote a book about this 30-some uh, 30, 30 years ago. I reread the book quite recently. And it's a basic principle that initially, in the development of a new technology, we have a knowledge deficit. You don't really know what it's going to mean. And by the time it becomes clear what the technology can do, what its implications are, you have a power deficit. You can't put the genie back in the box. Now, if that was true classically of things like nuclear power and the auto car and all sorts of more traditional innovations, you think about that in terms of the innovations as the Moore's law curve gets steeper with the rapidity with which research development take place as it gets increasingly steep. So what about desiderata? Well, I have um, five things I would like, so please, please, 
please, please give me. <laughs> um, five, five desiderata. First of all, picking up my earlier theme, a dramatic raising of the awareness and interest of the public in the implication of these developments. Quite dramatic. And there is, of course, an opportunity here for the church. I mean, we have our own institutions. We have our own communications systems. We have our own very captive audiences <laughs> within which to address these questions. And you see, if there is a dramatic raising of the significance of these questions through the churches, through presidential debates, through public intellectual leadership, immediately the constraints on decision-making by those with capital, by the corporations, indeed by the inventors themselves, become significant. Because they're party to this larger conversation about where the good lies and where the markets lie. You know, the GMO story, whatever you make of GMOs, 1997, Monsanto apologizing to the environmentalists because it got it wrong. There are lessons there. If you haven't got a market, <laughs> you lose a lot of money. You raise the level of the conversation and the values questions become integrated into the investment decisions. Secondly, increased awareness, this is in fact the other side of this, increased awareness on the part of investors and corporate leaders of the need to embed responsible ethical choices into their products. Um, if you like, this is a, if you like a new corporate social responsibility. Those of you who follow the CSR discussion, I, I did some writing about it in the past. All of our big corporations now want to be seen to be socially responsible. So whether they're giving away food to the poor or developing projects which may be quite creative projects from the social enterprise space, they all have all these big corporations have, have social responsibility efforts. Social responsibility needs, if you like, to begin with the products which these corporations are developing. And so it seems to me there will be a new birth of corporate social responsibility in which they embed the values of the community in this increased level of awareness and conversation in the whole R&D cycle. Um, footnote there, some of you will know Michael Porter, the great guru of competition, the most the most respected in the business world, um, academic um, um, business professor. And his rather strange notion, which was somewhat um, regarded as being very strange when he promoted it several years ago, that corporate social responsibility will in fact end up being integrated with the corporate, um, with, with the bottom line. And that you will have only one kind of value, which he calls shared value. And ultimately, in the accountable corporation, given communication technologies and public interest and so on, Ultimately, corporations will align their products and the values of the community. And I think what Porter was saying then about more traditional CSR issues becomes particularly significant in our preparation for a world in which the emerging technology questions are going to be central. And in line with that, some of you may know, the European Commission has come up with a concept which it calls responsible innovation. 
And they, a book came out on this and so on several years. I was invited to speak at the launch of this book in Brussels because I happened to be in town. And I confess, one thing I said was, you'll never sell this in America because it'll be regarded as basically anti-innovation. <laughs> this notion you've got to be responsible. But it is the case that if you want your innovation ultimately to find a market, if you like, the values of the community ultimately will be what drive the value of your products. There's a correlation there. And the better communication takes place, the higher the profile of the conversation, the more significant is this logic. Third, third desideratum. We need increased civil society dialogue. And our existing civil society organs, these major organizations, some of them, which have huge social influence, need to be part of this agenda. This isn't always good. It isn't always easy. Some of you may know, news in the last three or four days, the Department of Commerce in Washington had convened a conversation between the major technology corporations and I think nine different civil society groups, including the ACLU and one or two privacy think tanks and so on, on facial recognition software. And whether when you're walking down the street, cameras should be able to pick you up, which they do now, identify who you are, feed that information to the companies and so on and so forth. And three or four days ago, all nine organizations walked out of the talks because they said the corporations involved would not budge on the principle that you had some, at some point to volunteer to have your data employed in this process. So this is, this, there's no naivety behind this way of thinking. But at the end of the day, if people don't have confidence in the products and the companies, the companies lose. So a civil society conversation and this effort take by the Department of Commerce to bring together the various parties with a view to a legally enforceable code drafted by the parties, I think is a very good model of, of how one, of how one can proceed. Fourth, briefly, we need to develop new models of corporate governance. Um, I think one of the big, well, Twitter is presently, you know, this is the case in point, but the problem with these social media corporations are the enormous pressures put on them once they IPO. Because, of course, it isn't enough to be profitable, you have to project growth. And Twitter's been in huge trouble here because Twitter is kind of, it's the sort of thinking person's social medium, you know, and there aren't seven billion people out there wanting to join it. And people cycle through it, they try it out, it's too complicated, it's not fun, it's not, you know, not like Facebook with all those pictures, lolcats and so on. So, um, what these organizations should have been doing is rather than IPOing, find other models of corporate governance that enable a payout to the initial investors, but end up, for example, with a mutualized model, like credit unions, in which basically the thing is owned by everyone who participates in it, which is the perfect model for, 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 social, for a social media company. In fact, Facebook is structured exactly the same as Rupert Murdoch's organization. You know, with two classes of shares, so it can be controlled from the center, and so on and so forth. It's, it's basically an old oil baron-type corporation. And Zuckerberg claims to be the 21st century man. It is really quite extraordinary. I mean, Andrew Carnegie would have found him a good friend. His corporation is controlled exactly like that. We need new models of corporate governance. Innovative models. Let's innovate the models of governance even as we innovate the with the technologies. And um, final um, observation is, uh, uh, desideratum, is plainly we need to seek increasingly global collaborative action because these are global questions. You can't control them within any one jurisdiction. 
And um, some of you will know that within, with UNESCO, UNESCO contains the two global bodies looking at the policy and ethical implications of new technologies. The International Bioethics Committee, which produced 10 years ago the one global instrument on the entire agenda of bioethics, the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights. Um, it was 10 years ago, it was 2005. I'm sure this is something you've all read and memorized and it's your bedtime reading, you know, but you've got to tune into this conversation. It's a global conversation. And COMEST, which is the French acronym for the World Committee, World Commission on the Ethics of Science and Technology, which looks at non-bio-related questions. But these, the organisms are in place to have these conversations. Ultimately, they have to be global conversations. Even if most of the inventing is being done in Silicon Valley, it's the global community which ultimately is going to have to work to embed human dignity, human rights as a central value in the application of these technologies. So, most of us in this room are like grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are alive in a hundred years' time. Let's focus ourselves on the choices we can make under God now and in the near future to secure a fundamentally ethical framework for the as yet unimaginable technologies which will be applied and which will frame the world in which they live. Thank you very much. That was When Hippocrates Met Kurzweil, Questions for Human Dignity in the 21st Century by Nigel Cameron, Ph.D., MBA, from CBHD's 2015 conference, Science, Research, and the Limits of Bioethics. Early bird rates for our 2021 conference, Bioethics and the Body, are available only until March 31st. To register for the conference, visit cbhd.org and click on Conference at the top of the page. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. All post-production for the Bioethics Podcast is done by CBHD Communications and Marketing Manager, Annalise Troll. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast. Bioethics Podcast.